Fund Podcast Network. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash remote ruby. This is Remote Ruby. Have you any remote ideas to the meaning of the word? What's up, y'all? Welcome back. What's going on, guys? Howdy. Have you been social distancing, staying at home? Yeah, I think I only went out like once this week to pick up some groceries. That was it. I have been too. Shannon kind of made me get out last night because I've been home since last Tuesday. And she was like, we should order pizza like, and go pick it up. So like, we all just got in the car and drove over there. And like, all I did was drive somewhere for her to go in and drive home. But it was nice to get out. <laughs> now that the weather is nice, like just going for a drive this weekend somewhere just for an hour or something. And I don't know, just getting out of the house. It'd be nice. I'm trying to take the dog on a walk, you know, more regularly now that it, it's been raining a ton lately. So now that the weather's like in the 70s here, I've been itching to get outside. I don't know. Maybe I'll just grab my laptop and sit on the patio and encode again. The gas is cheap right now, at least down here. It was like one of my friends got it at Costco for $1.31 or something like that. Jeez. I think I saw like $1.59 or something. That's super low. Good time to go driving. Yeah, I guess. Man, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the Cannonball Run. Like, Basically, it's a race from New York City to LA to do it as fast as possible. And there's like... Well, like, I mean, it was a movie based on like actual races that happened in like the 70s. And then there was a movie with Burt Reynolds and stuff. But like people still do this and there's been conversations about like, should, is this a good time to go do that now that everybody's staying <laughs> home? In the past, they have done basically trying to figure out the, the least busy day to do this with the least amount of traffic. So it was like Columbus Day was the one that one guy had calculated. It was like the best day to go do it. But these people have like one guy hired a plane to fly ahead and just look for cops and stuff. And they have to go like, he said their speed has to be like 160 miles per hour as much as possible because you still have to stop for gas once in a while, which takes your like average speed down pretty fast. And it's, it's a fascinating thing. And there's apparently some like one lap around Manhattan, which is another like kind of like underground race thing that people do. It's insane. Gonna hop in the mini and go try it. Yeah. What else are we gonna do? You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a. I don't know. I kind of it, have adjusted to the new schedule, like of being home, but it's it's definitely weird. Yeah, it's just gonna be weird if this is like, you know, six months, twelve months. You know, that's gonna be really weird. Uh, yeah. yeah. But. Yeah. So anything exciting going on outside of while you've been home? No, no, not really. I agreed to do the Rails Conf. Uh, like, I don't know, they're going to record videos you recorded at your house, you know, and then they'll publish them on YouTube. So I don't really know how it's going to work, but I guess I've got maybe two more weeks or whatever to get that together. I'm trying to 
cut out some time to go practice that and figure out how I'm going to do it. It shouldn't be too much different from my regular recording. So that's good. But yeah, not, you know, I launched Jumpstart Pro's multi-tenancy thing this week and an update to pay alongside of that. Other than those two things, not a whole lot. How about you guys? So I launched a app along the lines of that HopeGrid app I have for churches. So it's just like, it's just a separate Rails app I spun up that lets churches have a form and they give it to people. And if people need help, they fill it out. And then it's just a SaaS app for assigning that and managing all that. And started on it last Tuesday and I launched it this Tuesday. So that's pretty quick. Yeah. Well, I had no billing or anything like that, right? Because it's just free app. So it's pretty, it's a good reminder, like when you have a deadline, how much you just stop caring about certain things. And you're like, I just got to ship it. So I don't know, it felt good to actually like release something. I haven't done that in a while. Did you have any big features you had to cut? No, not really. I tried to like, you know, speak of multi-tenancy. Like I, my initial like database design was like for that. And then finally I was like, no, I just got to, like, <laughs> I'm just going to get it out. So I just did a, a team has many users kind of thing. And I mean, it's a free app. If you want another account, like just, just use another email. Yeah. Or throw yeah. like plus account to in your email address. Like, yeah. So, yeah, that's definitely the easy way to go about it. Cause there's, man, there's lots of little things that are annoying about multi-tenancy stuff. Having launched that this week, it took like, I don't know, a month of, you know, working on it part-time to to get it out the door and probably another month before that of figuring out what the heck I need to actually do. Because we'd built like teams in before. It was basically the same thing. But <laughs> like a lot of people are looking for like, how do we do or enforce security on the multi-tenancy stuff when we're querying models and whatever. And you, you want to be careful not to like forget and do a project.all and now you're like looking at every tenant's projects. And I know the, what's his name from Citus uh, gave a talk at uh, Southeast Ruby. Yeah. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Yeah. He's talked about, and, and Citus is like a Postgres engine or something that like improves scaling up your multi-tenant applications and stuff in Postgres, which is pretty cool. But like you can use access tenant. And so I, I have that as like an optional thing you can turn on in Jumpstart Pro now. So when you add models that need to be in a tenant, you just put account ID. And we renamed teams to accounts because it's much clearer and stuff. So that uh, you know is a really nice thing because like you can just have projects belongs to account and then you can always query every project. But if you want to make it uh, tenant specific, you just add access tenant account into your model. And then if you query project.all, it will return what nothing by default if you don't have a tenant set and you're like required to set a tenant. And then it will just scope those queries automatically for you, which is kind of sweet. So there's just such like seamless integration there with your active record queries that it makes multi-tenancy like really easy. Cause I think that's probably the biggest concern most people have is just like, how do I make sure customer data is separate? You know? And so yeah. that is like, 
you can separate it by referencing current account dot projects all the time if you want. But if you forget it once or do it in the console wrong, you know, you're kind of screwed. And that's a, such a great like solution to handling that problem. I thought that was pretty cool. And then using like Rails 5.2's current attributes makes, um, you know, you can assign the current tenant to that the current account and then also have that set the current tenant for access tenant. And I think access tenant was forked by Citus as well to, to make the active record multi-tenant gem as well. It seems to have since like diverged a fair bit. Like it's not as close to that as it used to be, but it like has some first party like performance or whatever, you know, improvements that make it really, really compatible with, with Citus, which is cool. So like, you know, you could swap that out pretty easily in Jumpstart Pro and use Citus if you wanted. But I think Access Tenant will work on SQLite, MySQL, Postgres, whatever. So I kind of figured that was probably the better, better route to go with that. But yeah, like you're saying, you know, that is one of those things that... You have to have a pretty thorough understanding of it before you go build it, you know? Yeah. Roles and invitations and do you let users decline invitations, you know, if they're already in the database? Like, do you auto add them or whatever? Yeah. A lot of nuance. My original thought was like, I'll build the infrastructure and then just sort of making it like has many, make it a has one. But even then, like... When I got to when I was doing like invitable device, invitable and stuff, I don't know. It's just there was one, yeah. I don't remember what it was, but it was like, I'm going to have to do a lot of work and I don't have time to do that. So, <laughs> yeah. See, I think we used to use device invitable and, you know, it, it is a really convenient little gem, but also it's kind of not that uh, it, it provides views and stuff, which is useful, but like, you know, you can just generate an invitation model with a uh, house secure token and then build your view to create an invitation and your view to accept an invitation in your controllers and pretty much good to go, you know. So it's not too bad to to do that as well. So, yeah, it's a good feature to have, you know, out of the box. So I don't ever have to think about it again. It was like a lot of a lot of like, what are all the situations we're going to have to support? You know, and that's probably the hardest part about Jumpstart is like just building it in a generic way. So it's kind of good defaults, but customizable. Right. Um, you, know. you mentioned like the optional ability to like use one of those multi tenancy gems. Like, I never thought of that. Like, that's really yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, you know, sometimes you may not want to do that. Like, you might be building like a marketplace or something, which is like a feature basically supported except for pay needs a little extra help to make that work with Stripe Connect and things in a marketplace way. But, you know, those are things you don't want to force on people, but like people who do want it should be able to opt in really easily. So it's like all installed and ready to go. So all you do is drop a one line into your model and then you're done, you know, so that's kind of cool. But yeah, it, it's quite a bit of stuff. Like we had this concept too of like, you know how GitHub and I haven't ever really figured out a great name for this, but GitHub, you have like your, your personal account, but then you can also be part of other accounts, like organizations is what they call them. 
Right. I wanted to have that in Jumpstart, you know, so that you could always associate things with it. Previously, we called them teams. Now they're called accounts. So every resource, like a repository or an app or a project or whatever, could be associated to the same thing. And then that way you weren't doing like some weird polymorphic relationship or something. You could treat them exactly the same, which was nice. But, you know, not every app, of course, needs like a personal thing. Like if you are building a certain type of app, it might be useful like GitHub or or Heroku or whatever, where you want stuff that's private to you, but not always. So part of the update I did too is let you just toggle a button in the admin, like the config area. And the default account will now be, you know, a a regular account. There's always going to be one account you're associated with. And the personal was pretty much like, do we allow you to invite other people to the account? Yes or no? You know, so now that is thankfully, you know, configurable and, and hopefully not a problem in the future. But now I've got to probably go into figuring out notifications. There's a few notifications options out there. And I really was curious how Laravel has this built in, which is another like plus one to Laravel, which always surprises me how much stuff they have built in. But they treat Slack notifications, email, and uh, like database notifications is all separate things, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, and um, SMS notifications. Yeah. And so like originally way back when was like, I'll just have one notification event and then convert that into the different types. Like when we display in the browser, when we send to Slack and whatever, you have to have different formats for all those things. So it's really hard to, you know, build notifications that way and take a single notification and convert it to the different types you have to send it out. So that approach I thought was really cool. So I'll probably end up taking that as some guidelines and using that to build out notifications at some point in the near future. So yeah, it's fascinating. There's so many like nuances to all these things to get them right. And I mean, you know, if you ever want to do like Twitter and Facebook, do the like grouping of similar notifications, like, yeah, have fun. (laughs) <laughs> it is not a not a simple thing to do. I've been struggling. So I I use Postmark for my transactional emails. How um, do you like Postmark? I love Postmark. So I use Postmark with field help. It's just, it's kind of no frills. Like it's just, it's what it is. It's pretty simple to use. I've been having trouble where my I send an email when you get an invitation and that happens through a device mailer like from device invitable. But then I also send emails just from like action mailer, like when somebody submits a form like for a new need. But my need ones are going through, but like only 50% of people are getting the invitation ones. Postmark shows as delivered. Are they getting sent to spam, I wonder? See, I asked that since this is like the Hope Grid project. I have a, my, my co-founder is doing more of the like talking to people and support and stuff. Mm-hmm. He said it's not going to spam, but yeah, so I compared the two sources in Postmark of like somebody got a need email and someone that got a invitation email. And the only difference was that the reply to was different, but everything else is the same. So I was like, well, because I don't know enough about this, I'm just going to change the reply to to match 
and like see if that works. And we haven't got any complaints today. I did it last night. So huh. That's super weird. Yeah. Wonder if that's triggering something somewhere. It's that so, would be really strange though, you know? Yeah, I did all the like DKIM stuff and like you know, the the other ones are going through, like the need ones. So I just I guess having the sender in device be a different email, like maybe it's because it's a subdomain, like a new one. Maybe they're like, oh, we're not sure about this. It's not like a trusted domain. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that's a good question. Those are always something you set up once, you get it working, and then you forget about it for years <laughs> until you have to touch it again. And yeah, it's always painful to like deal with that stuff because you never fully know if it's working. You can send yourself a couple emails, but you don't know if it's going to spam for other people and any of that. You just have no idea. It's kind of yeah. strange. Yeah, he like he keeps messaging me like, "Hey, this person get their invitation email," and I'm like, "Hands up!" Like it shows delivered. Like I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the other reason I chose Postmark uh, was when I was doing field help because field help was originally I tried to do more like support style. So like you, I used Action Mailbox and like you could have email conversations. Mm. Have a good uh, system for inbound email, and I believe it just worked with Action Mailbox. So, yeah, I think so. I think it's one of the out of the box supported ones. That is something I haven't really touched since it came out. I need to, you know, build something with that again. And uh, man, I'm still watching that that active storage issue on GitHub of like adding CDN support. And, and it's just like constant arguing back and forth of like, I don't like this API. I like this instead. And then like DHH away in and be like, nah, it's not like, it's, it just doesn't make sense or doesn't feel like what we want. And I wonder if that ever is going to ship. I'm like, it is probably the key feature most people need out of active storage, but yeah, may not. It may not land in Rails 6.1, which I wonder what's going to happen with all that because of RailsConf going into the... Well, I just got an email while we're talking about RailsConf 2020.2 Couch Edition. So I'm guessing that that is going to be the name for the YouTube version or whatever. Which will be cool, you know? But I wonder what's going to happen. It sounds like he's probably going to give his talk. And I would imagine the keynote people are going to do the, you know, all their talks just like they would have anyways. We'll just be watching together on YouTube live streams or something. That'll be kind of fun. Yeah, I'm glad they're going to do something with it. Um, Yeah. I wonder if it'll postpone any Rails 6.1 release. They're pretty... I mean, last year was supposed to be in May. And then what was it? Three or four months later, finally shipped. So yeah, we'll see. I'm really curious just to see what comes out of the Turbolink 6 and um, new stimulus and whatever updates. Because that the conversation lately too has been like on the, the pull request from 2018 and stimulus, I'm still subscribed to that. And the conversation's like, what the heck's going on? Like, why propose this, you know, these changes if you're never going to ship them and merge them or even really comment on this? So, you know, something's brewing behind the scenes, but there's just like, it's being kept secret. So 
we should have some fun stuff to check out at some point. I think somebody mentioned, I think Julian mentioned that Nate was maybe poking around Hayes um, source code again and taking a look at Turbolink 6. So maybe we'll have to uh, chat with him about that next week and see what's going on there. That is going to be a fun upgrade, I think, because it sounded like it's going to address most of those concerns that have made Turbolinks kind of annoying over the years. So, Before we started, before Andrew had to drop off, you mentioned that Webpacker 5 has been released. That's the first I heard about that. Do you know much about oh, that? Oh, really? Yeah. The changelog is pretty simple. It's really like, it seems to me that the main reason Webpacker 5 got released was for bumping the minimum node and Ruby and Rails versions. It's not like Webpacker 5 is out and we're releasing a compatible thing with that. It does allow one cool thing, which probably is going to make things a little bit more simple. You know how you have to write your, say, your application.js and then inside of there, import your application SCSS file? There's now an entry point you can define that will allow you to define like application JS and application SCSS separately. So yeah. So it'll map a little bit better to what you're doing in your head tag where you're like a separate include for the style sheet and a separate one for the JavaScript. So that should hopefully clean up some clarity things there, but sounds like there was just mostly those things as the main changes. And I'm guessing the minimum versions are the main reason why they pulled new uh, major version out, it seems like. That so is, it doesn't uh, seem too scary of an upgrade then. Yeah, no, that's a relief because I was hesitant to upgrade, especially when I saw it like the same day or something, a, a patch version, a bug fix version was released as well. But I was like, eh, maybe I'll wait a week or two or a month and just see if there's anything bad. But no, it looks fine. So, yeah, that was one of the things I was fiddling with this week, actually. Versioning is tough. So one of the changes I did in in the PageM was we have this concept of a billable model, and that is someone who can make payments, basically, so they can subscribe and, and be charged. And you could include that module in anything, but... Our initial setup was like mostly using a config variable to say there was one billable class. I think mostly to help the the generating of migrations. I think that's, that that sounds like why we did that. And I think in the some of the webhooks you could pull in. So if there's a new subscription you create directly in Stripe, you could listen to that webhook, look up the user, and it gets harder if you're. Like, okay, this customer ID comes from Stripe, but it could be on any of these 10 different models. You know, you have to actually query 10 different times to hopefully find what you're looking for. I actually made that change this week to make it so it fully supports multiple billable models. So instead of the install process being, you just copy our migrations and set a config variable for user or whatever, You'll actually run Rails G pay user, and that will generate a migration to add the billable fields like the processor and processor ID stuff to the user model. Then you can run that again for 
whatever account or team or whatever other models you want. And it was just kind of like, you know, a f- it's one of those things where if you're changing data structure stuff in a gem or a library, it's really kind of frustrating because you want to make that as simple as possible for your users to upgrade. But, you know, at some point we're going to need to deprecate that config variable because we don't, I left it in, but we don't use it anymore. And the only reason it's staying in there right now is so that it's not going to break your existing migrations and stuff. You know, that config variable doesn't get used anymore, but at least it won't break anything. So I, I decided to release a minor version and then deprecate that. So in the major version, we can get rid of it. But it didn't seem like important enough for a new major version, but I don't know. It may, there may be some good arguments for why I should have just released a major version there, you know? So I don't know. It was one of those like interesting moments of like, how do you deal with those complex situations when it's being used in ways you have no idea, you know, and other people's apps that you've never seen, you can do your best to estimate how it's going to affect them. And I did this and made that change and then upgraded Jumpstart Pro with all that. And, you know, I have to go back and kind of edit those original migrations and just say, we'll add these fields to the user table and just replace that instead of the config variable that it was using before. And that went pretty smooth, but making sure everyone does that, I don't think it's going to go that easily. So I figured, I figured the minor version bump you know, you're not going to bundle update and magically get that. So I, it seemed to me like that would be a decent solution for it. But I'm curious to hear what you think. Yeah, I think that's fine. Because so when you said like Rails generate pay user, like I was like, oh, that's device. Like I'm used to that. Um, yeah. And I actually copied that code straight out <laughs> of device because it works so well in device. And, and the big win we got big is in in quotes. But as you run that command, just like devise does, where if you have a a user model that already exists, it will insert the devise line into the model. We do the same thing and we'll insert pay billable now into your class, which is kind of cool. So now now we actually expect you to have that model like for sure set up unlike devise. But that, yeah, it works the same way, which is kind of a nifty little improvement we got for free just by copying those generators. I was going to say too, in terms of like migrating forward, because pay is only supported billable for one model so far, like changing that migration is not a problem because it's not like you have to update multiple ones. You just have to go find that one and remove the variable. Yeah. Variable and change it to. Yeah. And at some point, like we'll deprecate it and then that won't work anymore. And you'll have to update your initializer that sets the config variable too. But I mean, if you overrode it at least, because the default was users, you may not have overridden it. That would be the only two changes you would have to make to do that upgrade. So that seems fine. But you may also do like a, you might use that variable in your own code because we exposed it like kind of as a public API using it in the migration. So. Potentially, you know, if you were doing a deeper integration, you might have fiddled with it. But for the complex thing that I've done in Jumpstart Pro, we haven't. 
I don't know that too many people have, but yeah, it was kind of a fun, you know, it just forces you into thinking about how do you do this in the most elegant way that doesn't affect, you know, with the least, you need to make this change. It's going to break things for sure. How do we do it in the least damaging way possible? It's a weird, weird thing to try and balance in, in your hands, it feels like. So before we were recording, I actually, and last week, Nate gave us a little walkthrough of Stimulus Reflex and how they use it in CodeFund before I got on the, to record with you guys. Today, I was fiddling with it just like super simply, building a to-do list where you have a to-do with a description and a completed that. So I added a checkbox into the index view. If you click that, it triggers a stimulus reflex that just updates the to-do in the database. And once the reflex is done, it will automatically re-render the HTML and then update the page with the changes. So it kind of feels like magic. It is really cool because you don't even have to set any instance variables or anything in your reflex. You're like, I just update this. I know that the controller action is going to load all of the to-dos again out of the database. So I don't have to worry about doing that. And you really have to just remember that like in stimulus reflex, your reflex gets called first and then it just calls the controller action like you did before. And it knows somehow which URL you came from and stuff and however it determines, you know, to call that same action. But it just works. And I was like, whoa, this is sweet. So I did that and it will just toggle the checkbox based on the complete of that timestamp being set. And then it will display that timestamp too. So you can uncheck the box and the timestamp disappears. Really cool. Even cooler thing is what he was showing us last week was that form magic that they do. You try to fiddle with that. And I don't totally know how to do it as complex as they do. But for the form, I just put the form uh, for a new to-do in line at the top before the table of to-dos. And I set it up so that when you blur the description box, that will submit a reflex to the server, take the text out of the description um, field, create a new to-do, validate it, and set it as an instance variable. So then you can update your controller action to set the to-do instance variable only if it's nil. So like with the or equals. And then that way it will use the to-do instance variable from your reflex and not the one in your action. So you can persist that and it will re-render with errors. So it feels like client-side validations, but you're really getting them server-side because it's re-rendering the HTML. It is super cool. It doesn't, of course... There's, there's got to be a way to do it, and we'll have to talk to Nate some more about this, but like, if you want to do that with multiple fields, there's probably more stuff to do. Like You probably have to... You may have to serialize the form in your own JavaScript in like a stimulus controller and then submit it to a reflex. I was just saying from the, dis- the description field, when you click out of it and it blurs, we'll just grab the text value off of that element because that was what I had access to and we'll use that. So in a really trivial example, it was like 
having magical client side validations in my form. It was amazing. I was so like so impressed with it. So yeah, I'm like super jazzed. I know we've talked about it a bunch of times, but I haven't actually sat down to use it. And, you know, you just have to remember that like, if you want to use the stimulus reflex without writing any JavaScript, you have to use a different data attribute. That was my hiccup at the beginning. I used the stimulus data action thing, but you that would work if you wrote your own stimulus controller that talks to a reflex. I was just doing the that wrong because if you want to use if you want to skip all the JavaScript, you just say data reflex and then stimulus reflex knows it's got its own controller or whatever and listens to so that. You, you can do it without having to like fire up your own stimulus controllers. So you can do it without adding any stimulus controllers. No JavaScript. You still have to write your Rails controllers or whatever. Right, right, right. But yeah, so I did all of that where the checkbox goes and marks the complete of that and the form validations, and I didn't write a single line of JavaScript. Yeah, aside from the install stuff for stimulus reflex, that was it. So it was pretty cool. It is like such a simple concept too, because it's just like, well, why don't we just pretend that this was another Rails like request as normal? Go render that HTML, call the controller actions, view helpers, the views, whatever. And instead of, you know, returning it back to the server as a regular request, we'll just send it over the WebSocket and then diff and update the page as we need to. And that's it. It's pretty slick. That's really cool. Yeah, I almost, I was really close. I think we were pairing this weekend when I almost used it for the table filtering stuff. Oh, I just, yeah. I got to where I didn't, I just didn't want to spin up like Redis and well, like an action cable environment. Right, right. Yeah, because there's, that's stuff I take for granted now because of Jumpstart, like even the free one will configure and make sure Redis is installed for development and then the device authentication and whatever. So it is, you do have to make sure that stuff is set up. But man, it would make, we were building, and that was another feature added to Jumpstart, which is the the sorting that you and I were working on the other day. And it is, Sorting is a funny thing, you know, like you got to whitelist the columns that are sortable because you don't want someone to put in like, oh, what if we sort by password or something, (laughs) you know, sort by encrypted password. You don't really want to give people access to that stuff on accident. And it's pretty easy to. So you want to whitelist things and then you've got to make a whole other request, you know, make that a link they click and it updates the URL. Stimulus Reflex could do that you know, with sorting tables and it would feel like a, like a data table or whatever that's, you know, sorting with JavaScript. So that would be a super cool little thing to cover. And, and I'm trying to figure out what examples I want to do for screencasts on this or a few examples, because it's just super powerful. And I think it would be really cool to, to show some examples of like trivial stuff you normally are doing, but how much faster and cooler it is with stimulus reflex for almost no code changes. Like it's amazing to see that you can add that checkbox thing 
You didn't write any JavaScript. You didn't create a new URL or new actions or anything. Like it's a method in a reflex class server side and you're done. That is really fun. Because the other thing was like, if you do that, you know, normally with a to-do list, you have like your other route for like toggle or complete or whatever, you know, and then you got to build the action and then that's got to either re-render the index and redirect or whatever. You end up having to build a whole other RESTful route. This is like, we had one method, we look up the to-do, we update the to-do and we don't even think about rendering anything. And it takes care of it for us, which is pretty nifty. So that's what feels uh, building messaging at Podia because, like, we use React, but it worked with Action Cable. Mm -hmm. And uh, since we already had a connection, I didn't have to fire off a bunch of HTTP requests. I just sent methods back to Action Cable, and they're just like these methods that are like they do one thing, and that's it. And like it was just yeah, yeah. Because did you do you have that like updating uh, Redux? store or something in the browser that knows to re to, to render that new comment or whatever? Yeah. So the way we did it, I didn't use uh, Redux. I just did a stateful like high level component, but the cable connections also stored there. And so anytime I would make a change, I would just rebroadcast back to that channel mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it would just update state and things would just happen. <laughs> like they Yeah. Just- yeah. See, this feels just like that without writing any state or without even knowing their state because your database is the state. And that's the like dumb part about all the like JavaScript stuff. You're like, how do we replicate our database in the browser, you know, and sync it from the the server side, which is not a great way to do things. So this really achieves that same interactivity without having to do that. It is a really cool thing. And it feels like there's there's a ton of different ways to apply it too that just haven't been thought of yet. You know, like the validations being feeling like clients out validations is kind of nuts. Like you use all of your same Rails validations, which is the coolest part of all this because you are trying on the client side to validate the same things as you need to server side, but you can't do things like this email is already taken without building an extra, you know, route that's like, check if it's a valid email and we'll make an Ajax request to that and then display a checkbox if it's, you know, not been taken. You don't have to worry about any of those things. You just like write the reflex, Rails validations tell you if it's valid or not then you can go update your HTML form to say, you know, if there is a value in the form, the email field will display a checkbox, you know, and that sort of thing. If if there's no errors and there's value or whatever, and you're good to go. It's pretty cool. And especially after we saw Nate's like really complex use of it in, in code fund for buying ads and seeing revenue or like inventory rather for ads. That was a pretty gnarly little form there. And it, it worked really elegantly. Like you couldn't even tell that it wasn't something that was being rendered server side. So pretty cool stuff. Yeah, that is really cool. My shout outs to Hatchbox again, coming through in the clutch. I went to, I guess I've never set up a wildcard domain on Heroku before. 
Oh yeah, I forgot about this. But there, if you pay for a dino, they don't support wild. Even if you pay for a dino, they don't support wild card domains. I guess like let's really. Hmm. Uh, you have to upload your own, and I didn't really want to go through all that, and so. I looked at one of their add-ons and all the add-on services were like, yeah, you can do all car domains for $79 a month. Jeez. And like Hatchbox, Oof. I did that with field help too. And it just does it with Let's Encrypt and it just works. And yeah, see that. And it was funny because maybe two or three days before you tried that, I had rewritten the Let's Encrypt install process. And as it turns out, the Let's Encrypt Ubuntu package it just hasn't been updated for like a very long time. Like it's version 0.3 uh, or 0.30. And then there's like version 1.4 is the latest version. So it's it's quite outdated. And they've just like silently abandoned it. And I happen to be like looking at their, their GitHub issues or something and found that. And I was like, oh no. So... A couple days before was helping somebody else debug things and stumbled into that. And I was like, I think I'm going to have to rewrite the entire Let's Encrypt like install process. And strangely, like you can... So basically the new install process is like just clone it from their Git or whatever. And it it is smart enough because it's Python code. It's like smart enough to actually just run the install for Ubuntu packages as it needs to. So like normally you would define all your dependencies and install it from the repo and it would take care of that. But like the certbot command is smart enough to like see that, oh, we're on Ubuntu. We need these packages. They're not installed. We'll just go install it for you. And I was like, well, that's that's cool. But why would they not update their instructions their official instructions say to use the other thing. So there is still conversation about that where it's like, why aren't you guys going to just change, like fix your instructions if you don't want to support this anymore? Like it's fine, but like just fix it. You know, like you don't have to continue supporting it. And yeah, anyways, here we are. So that you ended up triggering like, I, I of course tested the bare bones set up for it and then not wildcard and the plugins have to be installed in a kind of weird way where you like use the let's encrypt pip python package manager version not your operating system was one so it's like separate and i had to fix a few things with that new setup to make it work for your cloudflare stuff but now it does and it's more reliable and will always be up to date whatever but some nonsense. Like this is the stuff that's like makes, you know, when I was talking about the pace upgrades earlier, like that's the kind of stuff that's really hard to keep in sync. You know, if they've got to build something that can run on virtually any operating system, how do you have a reasonable install process for every one of those operating systems and keep it up to date and everything? Like it's not easy. It's just, you have to be very careful with how you do things and, you know, keep it as minimal as possible. Because they said there were only like one or two people working on CertBot full-time at Let's Encrypt, which is like, man, that's not many wow. people. So, Especially for how much CertBot is used. Yeah, I thought so too. So, yeah, I don't know. It's it's nuts, but it's, it's the world we live in. 
programming is a strange thing just because you, you, I guess, have to be so backwards compatible or whatever, you know, kind of forced into it if you build anything that other people use. So it's a weird, weird thing to do. It's nice when you build a product and you're just like, no one uses our API and we don't, we don't <laughs> even have an API, so we can change things anytime we want. It's much nicer doing maintaining apps like that. Well, it's been uh, good to catch up. Andrew was... I don't know that Andrew even said anything today before he had to drop off the call. I think he said hi, and then he was like, <laughs> uh-oh, got to leave. So we'll catch up with him so. next week for sure. But yeah, it is, it is like the early days. <laughs> early days. We're up to... Did you know we've done... This is what, episode 72? Can yeah, you believe that? Yeah, we got up there. It's pretty crazy. We've yeah. done... Almost, yeah, what, 52 is our one year's worth of weekly screen or week, weekly podcasts. I can't even talk. How am I doing a <laughs> podcast? This is stupid. <laughs> yeah. I was actually, I meant to mention last week when Jaden went to the hospital, that's the first one I've ever missed. Is it really? Yeah. yeah. Wow. I, re- I was, didn't realize that until last week. It's kind of crazy that we've been so consistent. Like, yeah, it's been good. Us. Now that we have other, now that it's just more than you and I, where we would have just skipped recording, now we can keep recording, and it helps to helps to ease that burden of you know always being there every every Friday consistently. But uh, yeah, it helps to not feel guilty. Like yeah. even though I still felt a little guilty, even though my son was going to the hospital, I was like, oh, I told him you can't <laughs> you can't feel you can't feel guilty about that. That is. Uh, we all felt bad for you, so we missed you, but you're back now. So, yeah, just, just everybody's good. Yeah, so don't look any uh, handles or anything between now and next week, and we'll talk to you on the next one. <laughs> Sounds good. See you later. <laughs> See ya. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com forward slash remote ruby.